Welcome to another episode of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Ellen McElligot, who is the Associate Professor in Animal Behavior and Welfare and affiliated with the Department of Infectious Diseases and Public Health and the Center for Animal Health and Welfare, City University of Hong Kong. Welcome, Alan. Hello, Sabrina. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to talk. Very much looking forward to, I followed your work on Twitter and websites and especially, you know, goats and kid goat stories that I'm keen about, but you do a lot of different things and a lot of different topics working across the world, it seems, and lots of species. So we'll definitely have a, a link to your website with this podcast so people can check it out. And there's also some opportunities I saw for PhDs and postdocs so, and other collaborations. So that's exciting. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we always like to kick off the podcast with like a, a short story, an early story often of people with their animals or with an animal or in nature. Uh, so I'm Irish. Uh, I grew up in Ireland a long time ago. I won't mention when, uh, but I grew up on a dairy farm, actually. But I was the youngest of six. Um, and so growing up on a dairy farm or growing up on the farm didn't naturally put me on an automatic path to studying zoology, which I did eventually because I was the youngest of six and I was the only one that was really interested in animals. And from the youngest age, I was just always fascinated about animals. Uh, the good thing about growing up on a dairy farm was, of course, I had ready access to animals. Um, we also had uh, dogs for helping to round up the cows. Um, and actually, my family also raced greyhounds. Uh, but believe it or not, mentioning goats, my first pet was a goat. I was age four. <laughs> Uh, and so there were dogs, and I loved dogs, but the dogs of the household, they were dogs who lived outside. I mean, outside in terms of they weren't house dogs, they worked with the cattle. They usually had cattle and uh, dung or mud on their feet and stuff like that. So they did, they had outside shelter in terms of the hay sheds and things like that. So they weren't exposed to the elements. Uh, but yeah, even though I really liked dogs and I played with dogs from a young age we had cats as well because cats were really good on the dairy farm for keeping down the numbers of mice and rats uh, but yeah my first pet was a goat age four believe it or not and she lived uh, well into her 20s uh, she didn't hang around with other goats until she had a daughter some years later but um, yeah she just hung out with the cows mainly Wonderful. So tell us a little bit more about her. What were you doing together and, and what was she like? What's her name? Uh, her name was Bess, believe Thanks. it or not. Uh, I mean, we raised her. I don't really remember hand raising her. I think we got her when she was already weaned. Um, and I do remember the an elderly man that we got her from, but 
you know, age four or five. But essentially, when she became old enough, she just hung out with the cows. And when the cows came from milking in the morning and evening, I would see her around then and I would hand feed her and she was reasonably tame. And of course, being a goat, I mean, I grew up in the countryside and being a goat, if you were milking the cows and got distracted, Bess was sure to be found in the front garden eating my mother's roses or something like that. So sometimes Bess wasn't too popular. Uh, but generally, she just sort of hung out and waited for the cows and went back out into the fields. It was more problematic in winter when they were kept in eating silage. But generally, she used to just hang out in the cow shed with them. And actually, obviously, she was a lot smaller than dairy cows, but she was usually the boss and would boss them around. <laughs> Excellent. Great. So you mentioned, you know, you ended up studying zoology. So why did you want to study zoology? Um, because of fascination with animals, um, all sorts from, you know, we had chickens at home for eggs. We had, we kept bantams, not really, uh, the really small ones, um, just sort of ornamental. They were sort of my hobby when I was small. Um, yeah, so I was always fascinated. I used to take we had several dogs that, as I said, already were used for rounding up the cows, but we had greyhounds. I would often, when I was really young, I mean, um, younger than 10 years old, I would often go for a walk through the farm and the fields and have maybe five or six dogs with me. Um, yeah. And they would be running after rabbits and things like that. I didn't know any better. They never killed any anyway. Um, but yeah, um, I guess there was a gap. I was five years younger than my next brother and sister. They were twins. So there was a bit of an age gap as well. And when you're really young, five years is a lot. So, you know, if you're eight years old, your older brother and sister are 13 and they don't want to hang up with a, an eight-year-old. So, but I did have a natural sort of affiliation and interest in animals anyway. Uh, and growing up in the countryside, it was possible to sort of explore that. I remember even catching sticklebacks in a local stream and raising them and keeping them for years and they used breed in cattle troughs actually and they were quite happy there. So yeah. So when so, you decided to study zoology did you already have some idea of what sort of job you wanted? I mean there's a lot of people looking yeah. to the animal field so perhaps you can share a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was a little bit odd at the time. This was a long time ago. And growing up in Ireland, I remember occasionally in second level school, we would have, you know, careers advice classes with a particular teacher in the school. And this was a rural school in the middle of countryside, Southwest Ireland. So, you know, the careers guidance teacher would go around the room and ask people what they wanted to be when they went off to study or trained further and it would be like the usual teacher, nurse, doctor, farmer, whatever. Uh, and then they would come to me and I would say zoology. And I remember I used to always get sort of questions or people doing a double take at me saying, what the hell is that? Or <clears throat> for example, oh, you want to be a zookeeper? And I'm like, no, I don't want to be a zookeeper. And I was often questioned about, oh, uh, why don't you want to be a vet? Why do you want to be a zoologist? And, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm and my exposure to vets when I was really young was the vets that were called out during the winter in the middle of the night at 3 or 4 a.m. when cows were having difficulty calving. And so 
I guess growing up watching wildlife programs, I sort of knew what a, I had an image of what a zoologist did, and that was uh, sort of studying living animals, potentially in their natural environment, um, not necessarily helping with sick animals. And that's what I sort of associated vets with doing um, growing up, because I that's what I saw them doing as well. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And of course, now I work in a veterinary department. Um, but yeah, so that's why I was always interested in zoology rather than veterinary. I wanted to study animals that were living and in their natural environment and behaving naturally, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, over the many, many podcasts, we've heard all kinds of people talking about how they came to, you know, their field of study or indeed, you know, what you see or hear when you're growing up. And also, you know, finding out what you don't want to do. So today you do research uh, on, you know, exotic animals as well as domesticated animals in the wild, in, you know, human care zoos, lots of different places. And so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, after your studies, what sort of work did you do and how did you kind of roll into the position you're in now? Yeah. So when I went to university, um, <clears throat> I had in mind that maybe I would study uh, zoology and use that as a route into marine biology. Um, but then actually when I started studying zoology, I realized that there were other animals that I was more interested in and they're the animals that I'm still interested in today. And they're the type of animals that I had first as a pet age four, <laughs> and that was goats or ungulates in general, hoofed mammals like cattle and buffalo and bovids and cervids. Um, so yeah, I when, when I started university, I sort of had a had a thought that I might do marine biology eventually, but I knew that zoology was a route into that. Uh, but then when I got to university, I decided when I really started getting into studying or having courses or modules in animal behavior, that's what really grabbed my attention. And actually, in my final year in Ireland, there is a four-year undergraduate degree. So in my final year, I actually did my little undergraduate research project on um, behavior of feral ponies living on a marshland in West Wales. I went to Swansea University many years ago for one semester. Um, there's a reason for that as well. I was on um, the Erasmus student exchange program. I didn't, you got, I didn't have very much money as a student at all. I was living sort of on the bare minimum, uh, but I was okay. I was getting by, but basically there was a small grant in order to travel, to go to another university. And it was cheap to get to Swansea. And it meant that I had money left over to live. Literally, there was a ferry route that took 10 hours from Cork to Swansea. And I went to Swansea. Also, I knew that there was possibility of doing a behavior project there that had been advertised on these ponies because there was a professor who was known for his behavior research. Actually, believe it or not, his name was Professor Brain at Swansea University. Uh, whereas the other universities I looked at were more, uh, the projects on offer were more ecological or something I wasn't interested in. But I do remember one of the primary reasons for uh, choosing Swansea was I could actually afford to get there. Yes, no, absolutely. And sometimes it is those things that are going to make decisions for us, right? If we're going to be smart about it. And also many of us don't necessarily want to come out 
the other end of our educations with huge student loans and debts and other things to pay off. So, um, and sometimes also, of course, we have other opportunities, but uh, how wonderful that, and you could make it work financially and have the behavior courses and do work on animals that you're interested in. And, and I think that's a really good insight and lesson anyway for all of us to really think about and do our research and look around and see what all the options are because sometimes we might not even be aware of opportunities that are right uh, near us uh, and give us opportunities. So perhaps you know you could talk to us a little bit about in general some of the work that you're doing and how uh, it applies to animal you know well-being and advancing animal well-being before we dive a little bit deeper into some of the specific projects that you are working on. Or yeah. So after that experience, I guess I finished my studies in Cork. Then I went on to uh, Dublin and did a PhD, but that was not animal welfare. That was more behavioral ecology, but it was on a city park population of fallow deer. Uh, and that went really well. And after that, I moved to Switzerland and I continued what I call sort of behavioral ecology type research that is studying animals sort of in their natural environment, feral populations or wild populations, again, studying ungulates like deer. And in Switzerland, Switzerland was a great place to be uh, because they have a diversity of wild ungulates. I mean, they have roe deer, red deer, ibex, which are mountain goats. Um, they also have chamois, which are mountain antelope. Um, and so while I was there for six years, I continued working on fallow deer, uh, but I also developed projects on the other species as well, uh, using student projects, master students who were really excellent and resulted in lots of publications. So it was when then after spending six years in Switzerland, I moved to the UK and that's when I decided that I wanted to get into more animal cognition and animal welfare work. Uh, I had grown a little bit tired of doing field work where experimental research was almost impossible. Like we, ha we have done and my group has done experiments in the field since then, playback experiments where you play back the calls of animals to other animals and see how they react or something like that. But in general, doing animal behavior, or animal cognition type experiments that sort of tell you a little bit about the welfare of the species, they're almost impossible using wild and feral populations. So that's why when I, after Switzerland, I moved to the UK, I tried uh, to develop more experimental work. And the reason for working are decided, that's when I started to develop the work on goats. I was first at the University of Nottingham, uh, which is Nottingham is about two hours drive or two hours on a train north of London. Um, and I mean, animal welfare in the UK and animal behavior. I mean, the UK has a big history of animal, top-notch animal behavior and animal welfare research. So I wasn't interested in just trying to repeat something that other people had done already, or, you know, it's also a competitive world. You have to get funding, you have to develop projects. There were already established groups working on pigs and sheep, for example, um, and those groups are still working on those species. And I realized that very few people or almost nobody had worked on goats, goat cognition, goat welfare. I had experience of goats in terms of having them around as pets. Um, there were another couple of reasons. I mean, at that time, that was uh, the late noughties uh, or the second half of the noughties. I was aware of one other research group, and that was in Germany, working on goat behavior and goat welfare. That group still exists, but I wasn't aware of anyone else across the world 
I mean, I know that they were, must have been groups, but generally I wasn't aware of them from published research. Uh, and so that was one of the reasons, or a couple of the reasons why I started working on goats. I wanted to work on an experimental model. I was in a competitive environment in the UK where I wanted to develop something new. Um, I knew that they had great potential in terms of their behavior. And also goats are not considered that important for the UK, but on a global scale, I mean, there are huge numbers. There are over a billion goats on the planet. They are more well known for the sort of environmental destruction they do in places like the Galapagos Islands and a few other islands across the world, or indeed other locations like Australia, um, when the numbers get out of hand and not controlled by predators. Uh, but I knew that there was potential for developing um, research on goats, and that's why I went down that route. Yes, wonderful. And it's really great to see so many different projects and, you know, study groups also on animals that are not, you know, well studied, but also like there are many of them. And some of them, of course, on these islands have been brought by humans, you know, as food and other uh, reasons in the past. But uh, often also there's many uh, facilities, you know, including children's farms and, you know, zoos and other places that have goats in their care for you know interactions or even for you know talking about them as animals in our midst so it's really great to have you know specific research that looks at their behavior their cognition that you know we can take that information and and also you know not just being known for being notorious but also for you know who they are as a species and of course the all these different individuals and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about that. So perhaps you could share a little bit with us also about, you know, different particular studies that you have done. There is yeah. you know, large carnivores and kangaroos. You've done a lot of different things. So, yeah, please share some of these examples with us. Which one would you like me to talk about first? Well, um, let's hear a little bit about the large carnivores. You have a paper on the need for rigorous welfare methodology reporting for the life capture of large carnivores. And I was quite intrigued by it. Yeah. I haven't fully read it yet, but uh, tell us a little more about that one. Yeah, so that cropped up. Actually, that started. So there was a paper published last year, uh, I think in November 2020. Um, and I saw it published and I started looking at the methods. It was about capture methods for large felids. So in South America, Brazil in particular. So we're talking about pumas and jaguars. And I saw the original paper published. It was published in quite a high profile and high standard journal called Methods in Ecology and Evolution. And when I started looking through it, um, some of the methods seemed quite uh, potentially risky. And I checked for the ethics statement of the manuscript or the published paper. There was none. There was no evidence at all that this planned research had gone through ethical review. Uh, and the other thing, they had uh, developed a trapping method. I mean, I'm naive. I have never worked on big cats in the wild. I hadn't used these methods. It turned out that these sort of trapping methods are used sort of routinely for animals. But the other thing that bothered me was in the paper that there was a mention of bycatch, or I can't remember the term they used, but there were other animals that were trapped and uh, in, the, uh, in these traps and potentially injured, but their welfare was not, or the fate of these animals that had also ended up in these traps was not detailed at all. So there were things like, I think, a giant anteater, 
uh, cattle and various other big animals that ended up in these traps and there were no details. So I started tweeting about this in terms of the ethical concerns and things like that. And then it got picked up by quite a few other people and people who have more experience than me in terms of um, wild carnivore uh, capture and welfare and ecology and stuff like that. So we did actually, um, Anthony Caravaggi, who's at a university in South Wales, he coordinated basically the efforts and we ended up writing a paper together to sort of outline the problems that we felt were inherent in this paper. It turned out after investigations that the authors did actually have ethical approval, um, but it hadn't been detailed, it had been left out of the paper. Uh, we had also access to the peer review article or the peer reviews of the paper when it was going through the journal processes, but we had outlined a whole lot of uh, problems uh, with it. But one of the other things at the end of this paper, it was they were recommending this as this new method for this new fantastic or great method for capturing large felids. And I mean, some of them were injured as well. Some of the target animals were injured as well. And there were no details about the veterinary care or anything like that. And actually, I didn't over. So then we wrote this letter and that's the uh, it was subsequently published. The British Ecological Society, which publishes the journal Methods in Ecology and Evolution, I mean, they've been really good since that because they have revamped their animals, animal ethics policies across all their journals. They publish important journals like the Journal of Animal Ecology, Journal of Applied Ecology, and Methods in Ecology and Evolution. Um, they publish another one, which is more recent. I think it's called People in Nature. Forgive me if I get that slightly wrong. But they've revamped their animal ethics policies across all the journals, which is great, and basically up the standard and the standard of checking and the standard of care. Because actually, I am increasingly alarmed um, about the number of studies that are being published without the right ethical oversight in place. Uh, and quite a few of these studies are in animal cognition and in allegedly animal welfare research, where the researchers doing the research should actually know. Um, but yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is really a great example of how, you know, there's more and more attention also to the well-being of wild animals and how we interact with them and how we collect data. And there's, you know, I remember seeing, you know, big sheets of, of white uh, with lamps on them uh, in Venezuela and, you know, and just putting some spray on there so that the insects would stick long enough so that they could be identified to then be peeled off and released and, you know, things like that. And you wonder, you know, birds being caught in nets and for ringing, there's all kinds of concerns there. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, this example that you brought up. And, yeah. and it's very good to to really review that and to be critical and to have that engagement, like you say, you know, maybe you didn't have that background, but still, you know, um, working together, we can start to make changes in the yeah, absolutely. In the data. Yeah. And that's something I would reiterate. I think in the end, uh, sorry if I get the numbers wrong, but there were 21, uh, 20 or 21 of us on the paper that came out in the end. It was really important. As I said, the British Ecological Society changed the ethics procedures for animal ethics procedures for all their journals. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, it was a big team effort. Yeah, I flagged it initially and I spotted some problems, but I don't claim to be, uh, you know, an expert in how to capture 
big wild carnivores. I have zero experience in that, but it's important then to contact and get input from the people who do, and you come up with some um, or develop your knowledge. Of course, I know a lot more now. I first flagged that openly, I think November last year. And now I know a lot more about it than I did a year ago, but I knew some sort of warning signals went off in my brain when I was looking at this. Um, yeah, and particularly the other animals that got caught in the trap and it was just one sentence and there was no details of um, their fate or what happened to them or did they get veterinary care? Or do they have to be euthanized and stuff like that? And these are important considerations. And particularly because the people who wrote the paper uh, were a veterinary team as well. So I expect higher standards. Yes, absolutely. And for many things that uh, that we work in, we need to do a collaborative effort because we all have different backgrounds and different expertise. <clears throat> but sometimes it also means that, you know, coming from a different perspective or a different angle allows us to see the things that, you know, I've sometimes learned things from people that are not in my field, just because a question that they ask and you go, oh, yeah, wait a second. So and, and that is really critical and really important. And also this follow through of, you know, revamping and changing as we learn and, um, and want to make things better and more rigorous um, and definitely safer for the animals. So, yeah, I was wondering whether you could explain a little bit more around in what ways have you collaborated? Because, you know, sometimes uh, we already heard from you that, you know, you had to, you, you contacted and then there was this collaboration, but, you know, often these things are not really flushed out or talked about. How how do you collaborate with such a big group? Did you meet or did you review? Uh, how did it, how did you go about it? Um, initially, it was through social media. I know social media gets an, a lot of negative press, but I find Twitter in particular uh, very useful. So I think most of the contacts initially were through Twitter. And then the couple of people I knew... As I said, Anthony was particularly key early on and he linked up with, he knew that's his area. And then he was able to link up with others. There was another researcher who's at the University of Edinburgh, Jessica Martin, who comes from an animal welfare and animal ethics point of view. And she works on the Royal College, or she assists on the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons ethics panel. So she deals with these matters a lot. So yeah, we, I don't think we ever had a meeting because we were really across the world uh, from like East Asia, me to the Americas. And as I said, I think it was 20 or 21 apologies uh, that I can't remember, but it's quite a lot. So I don't think we ever had one meeting, uh, but there was certainly a document on Google documents <laughs> that we edited and yeah, so the person who was leading it did very well to draw all the ideas together because as you can imagine, it's quite a lot. In terms of collaborations in general, in the past, it was about meeting people at conferences or just sending an email or somebody sending me an email um, because they heard about something I was doing or saw a press release of something that was published uh, or for younger researchers contacting me looking for a research position. Uh, one of the people I've worked most with, and I think I've published most papers with her, is Elodie Briefer, who is Swiss, originally did her PhD in Paris, studying vocal communication in Skylarks. Uh, she's now associate professor at the University of Copenhagen, working on animal welfare. We still collaborate, but she was one of the early ones. Um, 
I think Elodie contacted me about 2007, 2008. I think it was 2008, I was still in Nottingham and she was looking for a postdoc position and she wrote a grant application with my help and she got the funding. Um, and at the time I was in Nottingham, I was already developing the goat research. I had some undergraduate students working on projects on goats. Uh, and I had found a study site near Nottingham as well. It was actually a petting zoo facility. So Elodie wrote to me uh, and she had a background in vocal communication, but working on Skylarks, but she really wanted to get into more animal welfare type uh, research. So yeah, that's how that came about. And we've always worked really well together initially. I moved to London then and uh, she moved to London as well. I went to Nottingham to our study site just to study the goats at the petting zoo. And she rented a room from a friend of mine that I've known from university days in Dublin years ago. Uh, but Elodie and I have, yeah, I think all our research has been on uh, goats together. I can't remember if we've worked on other things, but she works on other things like horses and pigs as well. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you're listening and you're interested in collaborating, uh, not necessarily with Alan, but just in general, you know, trying to find out there's all the social media outlets, of course, you know, looking for what species do you want to work with? What sort of research are you interested in? Who might be doing it? Or uh, maybe you have your own ideas and try and, and find people that you can connect with. And of course, if you're working in an organization and maybe you don't have opportunities directly for research, you can always make connections with universities or colleges or others that can help you perhaps do also research on your goats or any other animals that you're working yeah. with. So yeah, collaboration around the world is uh, is so important or locally, of course. And I always love to see these maps where people, you know, have, you know, if you have like your 21 or 22 people where they are around the world and you all did it on Google, uh, which is great for reducing our carbon footprint. So yeah, yeah wonderful. I would say probably if I had to advise anyone, the best source of networking and finding like-minded people these days in terms of science and animal welfare would be Twitter. It's really the best. Excellent. So if you're not on Twitter, you might have to get a Twitter account. So, all right, let's hear a little bit about uh, kangaroos. You have a paper ah. on kangaroos display gazing and gaze alterations during yeah. unsolvable problem tasks. What was that about? <clears throat> it sounds complicated, but it's not. And it also means that I talk a little bit about the goats, of course, because that research on kangaroos came about as a direct development of work that we had done on goats. So testing the kangaroos with the unsolvable problem task, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. Uh, I'll tell you what the unsolvable problem task is and then tell you a little bit about the background. So the unsolvable problem task is you train the animal to approach a plastic box with a tiny piece of food in it. Um, of course, the box is open. Um, and so the animal, you train it three or four times to make sure it associates and will approach the box and get the food out. Um, and it's usually something it likes um, with the kangaroos that we tested, it was mainly a small piece of carrot or a small piece of sweet potato. Uh, uh, with the goats, it was a small piece of dried pasta, believe it or not. Uh, but essentially what happens then is you close the box uh, and the box is now the unsolvable problem task because they can't open it, they don't have hands like us. And the key is to look at the behavior of the animal and see what it does. Does it, you know, 
there's a human nearby and does it try to interact with the human to sort of in some way communicate with the human that it uh, needs help to get food out of the box. So jumping back, I did that research in Australia um, two years ago, um, jumping back many years in the early noughties, a research group, a really well-known research group in Budapest working on domestic dog behavior and how domestication has changed the behavior of domestic dogs. Um, I mean, there has been a, an explosion of interest in domestic dog behavior and welfare uh, over the last 20, 25 years. Um, but that group in Budapest is one of the leading ones. A lot of the research on dogs is about their behavior, how they interact with humans, but there's a big interest as well in understanding how domestication has changed their behavior. So, of course, we know that domestic dogs have been domesticated from wolves, uh, wild wolves. And so a couple of research groups across the world have got the resources in place to actually get some wolf puppies and hand rear them. Because, of course, you cannot compare the behaviors of our domestic dogs with wild wolves because the wild wolves, well, they're dangerous. They're not used to being around people. You can't test them because they would be too fearful anyway. Uh, so a couple of groups were interested. They managed to hand rear wolf puppies, get them socialized with people, and then you can actually carry out experiments with them. So they tested wolves or compared wolves and dogs with this unsolvable problem task. In summary, when they closed the box, the dogs that were being tested looked towards the human for help. Uh, when they tested the wolves, the wolves were more likely to try to break the box open with their teeth and not really interact with the human present. So this was interpreted as, or the behavior of looking towards the human for assistance was interpreted as a domestication effect. And of course, dogs, um, dogs were domesticated to work really closely with probably the other species that has been domesticated in a similar way are horses because you know horses are ridden or they pull plows or they really work closely with humans and have to learn uh, to perceive human commands. So we were interested in this when we were working on the goats so because goats of course they're domesticated but they haven't been domesticated they've been domesticated as production animals and what we mean by that is you know goats have been domesticated for their milk or meat or fiber um, they haven't, even though more recently, of course, we've kept goats as pets like I did when I was really young, but, you know, goats were the first domesticated livestock species. Dogs were the first domesticated species, but goats were the first, first domesticated livestock species about 10 and a half to 11,000 years ago, but domesticated for production. So we were curious to see, would they show the same sort of perception abilities or communicative abilities as dogs. Of course, we were testing goats that lived on a sanctuary and we were working at a place near London called Buttercup Sanctuary for Goats. They're used to interacting with people. Um, it's not a farm facility. So they are used to being around people, but that's important because you don't want goats, for example, that might be fearful around people because then if you test the goats and you show that they can't do something, you don't know whether it's because they can't they really can't do it or just because they were too fearful in the setup. So we tested the buttercups goats and they behaved just like dogs in a way. When the box was closed with a small piece of dry penne pasta, um, the goat looked up at the person present. We also tested them where the person there was either looking towards the box or looking away from the box and they behaved differently. So they approached the person and 
I don't know if pawing is a term for goats, maybe you call it hoofing, but in certain cases, they actually use the hoof to draw the attention of the person. Um, so yeah, so then the reason uh, we wrote a press release for that, it sort of went viral across the world. There was a lot of general media interest in it. It was like, move over dogs, goats are animal, are a human's best friend, which is an exaggeration, of course, but I get why they were trying to say that. Um, so we showed them that you can have a domestic species. Also, the important thing is people really underestimate livestock species. They don't think they can do these. Um, and, you know, you can, nobody since then has tested cows or sheep or pigs or things like that. There are various constraints. Somebody should. Um, but we were able to show that it was a domestication effect in general, this sort of looking back. But I always had a sneaking suspicion that it wasn't a domestication effect at all. I thought maybe it was just an effect of the animals being used to being around people and that you didn't need domestication. So it's all right. I know it's a long winded story, but that's how I get to kangaroos. Um, and then I thought, well, I had been in Australia in 2018 for a conference, actually the anthrozoology meeting. I have uh, good friends and family in Australia. Uh, I was working at the University of Roehampton at the time and the University of Roehampton allows you to take a one semester uh, sabbatical to do a research project. That doesn't mean you can automatically go away to Australia to work on kangaroos. Uh, I think I applied for the grant 10 months, there was a lot of forward planning in terms of discussing the ideas with somebody in Australia, developing it, thinking about it. I applied for the grant at the end of February. I applied to the Association for the Study of Animal Behavior, ASAB, and that was about testing this unsolvable problem paradigm or task with kangaroos. And the reasoning is that, you know, Australia, uh, our kangaroos in Australia, the ones I worked with, the medium-sized kangaroos like Eastern Greys, uh, Western, um, Eastern Greys, Kangaroo Island kangaroos, and the uh, red kangaroos, they're the sort of kangaroos, medium-sized ones that you've seen on TV over the years, I'm sure if you've uh, watched anything about Australia. But in a way, they're like Australian goats. Because, I mean, they sort of have that niche, they're medium-sized, they're herbivores. Uh, some of the people I spoke to before I did it were really skeptical and said, you know, kangaroos aren't uh, food-motivated at all. Goats are really mo food-motivated, but, you know, kangaroos, they're not going to give a damn. Um, but I persisted. So I got the grant from this ASAB. I traveled to Australia uh, two years ago from September until the end of December, found some locations where we could study kangaroos and we found them at a couple of wildlife parks and a refuge, our rescue center. And that again was because we wanted to work with kangaroos that were used to being around people. So we weren't going to stress them out by trying to interact with them. I mean, the setup anyway is not a particularly stressful thing. When we tested the goats, we led the goats on a leash into our testing enclosure. You can't do that with kangaroos. So we just had to attract them individually to towards one corner of their pen, but they weren't restrained, even in the sense of putting a leash or a collar on them because you just don't do that with kangaroos. So they were free to interact with us. And the key thing was, of course, kangaroos have never been domesticated so if we found this sort of behavior in kangaroos, it would mean that this is not a domestication effect or potentially not a domestication effect at all. It's just an effect of an animal species having positive interactions around people and getting used to them. So as I said, when I spoke to people 
about this, some of the, it was a risk. I didn't, I had no experience of working with kangaroos. I'd been to Australia and seen a few in a zoo, but I had zero experience working with kangaroos. Um, and it is a risk, but sometimes these are the sort of risks you take for small projects uh, and see how it goes. And uh, ASAP were kind enough to give me the funding to get it done. Um, and I remember we had three locations with small numbers of kangaroos. And we went to one location with a small number of kangaroos and we thought these are the kangaroos, they were uh, red kangaroos and Western greys. And we thought these are the ones that it's probably not likely to work on. So we thought, well, we'll we didn't have many kangaroos to work with. So we thought we'll go there just to test the protocol and see if it works. So that when we get onto our main study site, if there are any problems <laughs> that we'll have ironed them out. <laughs> but literally I was there, um, I went with my friend Christine, I think, or was it Alexandra? The re, uh, basically, there were three of us to work together. One of them was PhD student at the University of Sydney, actually doing her PhD on cattle, and she was writing up. Uh, and we, we knew of each other's research, and we met up at the seminar, and I asked her to help out because I needed a second person. And the other person helping out uh, was my friend Christine O'Keefe, and we were students and housemates together many years ago as undergraduates and she studied geology and I studied zoology and she works in Sydney now so she helped me as well anyway when we tested the first two animals one evening at about 6 p.m it actually worked the first time I was like oh my goodness <laughs> even I was shocked because we had been around these kangaroos for a couple of days and we had visited them a few times and um yeah, I didn't think it was going to work at all. And it did. And it was really obvious. Uh, and I was, I think, of course, I couldn't sort of jump and shout for joy because it would frighten the kangaroos. But I think internally, my heart rate did actually go up with excitement thinking this will work. Because, I mean, I'd been thinking about this. This was um, the last quarter of 2019. Um, I'd been thinking about this since 2018. There was a lot of organization in terms of applying for the grant, orga um, organizing the trip to Australia, all the logistics, finding the locations, and finally you're there and have to test them. Uh, and it actually works. Um, and yeah, people, the people who were familiar with kangaroos said it probably wouldn't work because they don't care about food and stuff like that. And it did. And they behave very similarly to goats. When they were faced with the unsolvable problem task, they looked to me. And in fact, a few of them put their paws on my knees as well to attract my attention. So yeah, it worked really well. Um, and so yeah, that's how I ended up working on kangaroos. It was inspired by the goat work, which was inspired by earlier work on dogs, in, uh, dogs comparing dogs with wolves. Yes, absolutely. I love it. It's like the kangaroos are like, hey, come, come and help me. Yeah. And there's the other thing I should mention just quickly is that, I mean, there was a review published in 1999 in the Australian Journal of Psychology, I believe, highlighting the fact that nobody was really working on marsupial cognition and marsupial behavior. There are sort of field studies of more wildlife biology studies of kangaroos and you know, counting the numbers and managing populations, but they're really an under 
use resource. And I think because they're marsupial mammals and not placental mammals like humans and most of the other animals that we work with, I think it's interesting to test them to see if some of their behaviors, because clearly kangaroos were never domesticated and there's no hint of domestication. They are really distant cousins, very, very distant cousins to dogs or wolves or goats. So finding this behavior in them uh, is particularly interesting. So uh, we are hoping to develop the research further and I'm in talks with uh, somebody at the University of Sydney, uh, Dr. Cathy Herbert. So we are hoping to develop a little bit more marsupial research together. Wonderful. So it was uh, probably then not a surprise for you when um, you, know, you were researching the goats and human pointing gestures and that they were using that in you know, solving the object toy choice task considering yeah. they kind of looked at people and yeah. So, yeah. But I mean, for us, um, anyone who's familiar with goats, so I have given talks in the UK at the Goat Veterinary Society meeting, which is attended by goat vets, obviously, but also attended by farmers. The things we find out do not surprise them at all. They will give you all sorts of anecdotes about what their goats do, you know, they tell you anecdotal stories of, you know, you have to afford knock the farms because goats are fantastic escape artists. They can open bowls, they can open doors, they get out of everything. They drive them crazy at times, but they love them at the same time. And similarly, people who work with goats, like the volunteers and all the staff at Buttercups, will relay lots of other stories like that. But there is a general public perception of, you know, goats being a bit stupid, running around, eating everything. Are people in general just thinking about livestock as not being particularly um, clever, leading to maybe not being particularly sentient? And that can affect the standards of care they often get. So trying to dispel these myths uh, has important implications of how, you know, trying to raise awareness that if you have these animals, give them the best possible care you have. Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know, one that's been certainly one of the important contributions of people in science and, but also the stories of people on farms or in rehabilitation centers or where else animals are uh, to talk about them uh, sanctuaries and uh, what they can do, you know, capacities, capabilities, uh, the fun friendships that they have together, all these stories that kind of build towards other, you know, people seeing other animals as sentient beings and, um, you know, beings who want a good life uh, as much as we want. And so, yeah, science obviously has a very important role to play in that. And it's, of course, also not a surprise that um, goats prefer positive human emotional facial expressions. I think everybody prefers to see, uh, you know, <laughs> positive uh, emotional expressions. But can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that study? Yeah. So, of course, some of the things uh, that we've worked on are based on anecdotes, and some of them are not particular well they're not particularly remarkable for some of us uh in terms of you know oh goats can follow pointing gestures or oh we found that goats can tell the difference between angry and happy faces um but you still have to run the experiment in a rigorous way and get it peer-reviewed and see if it's been done properly to actually show that that goat research was also um inspired by earlier work in dogs there was a group or uh, a couple of researchers, two in particular based in Brazil, Natalia Albuquerque and Karina Savali, they published a paper back in 2016, I think, um, 
about how goat, sorry, not goats, about how dogs are really good at doing this. So we thought, but of course, many people would say, again, you know, your dog hangs around in your living room or in your house all day, and maybe it's not that surprising. But that research was also inspired, uh, that work that we did on goats uh, was inspired by them. And I met, I, uh, somebody invited me to a conference in Brazil and I met Natalia and Carini. I don't know if we had contact before that, but then Natalia was going off to the University of Lincoln in the UK and we maintained contact. And while she was there in Lincoln, she came to visit me in London and we went to see the goats. Um, and I had the idea that we would try this. So we really worked with the people who had done the research on the dogs. Uh, to see if the goats could do this. And in fact, we used the same photographs. So the photographs that had been used for their dogs in Brazil were black and white photographs of a few Brazilian students. And we used exactly the same photographs in our study of goats to see if the goats... So the goats were in an enclosure, a small enclosure, I think it was 10 or 15 meters uh, you know, in diameter. The goats were trained without photographs being present in the enclosure. They were trained with a piece of food just to go across the enclosure. That was so that it was a circular enclosure. And that was so that when we put the photographs there, we wanted them to approach the photograph. Uh, but in the training phase, there were no photographs present. So I think they were trained three or four times to go across the enclosure with a small piece of food. And then in the sort of test phase, there's no food there anymore. And of course, the goat goes across the enclosure to explore. But in this case, we've turned around the panel showing a life-size photograph of a man and a woman. And they're smiling or happy, or sorry, happy or angry, uh, the man's face either happy or angry and the woman's face either happy or angry and tested them and we were able to show that the goats were more likely to approach the uh, happy face and again some might, people might think this is not particularly remarkable but on the other hand I mean it's known that sheep for example and goats can remember human faces but telling the difference between happy and angry ones is slightly different and perhaps more challenging the other thing of course is of course within a species we tend to be good at perceiving the emotions of another species. So I can tell when humans are sort of general, unless they're faking it, not actors, um, when they're happy or angry. And also, of course, we're used to being around dogs and uh, the dogs I've had, I could tell when they were in a happy mood or not so happy mood. Um, but it is supposed to be more challenging cognitively uh, for being able to perceive emotions across species. The classic example I always give when I'm talking about this is a photograph of um, bottlenose dolphin, because bottlenose dolphins, everybody thinks they're happy. And of course, they're not. It's simply the physical shape of their head and rostrum. Hopefully I'm using the correct terminology. I mean, they might be in a happy mood or an angry mood. We just don't know. But we are our brains and our eyes are ingrained towards that smiley uh, sort of shape of the mouth. So people have this automatic once they look at a bottlenose dolphin, they think they're smiling and they're really not. It's just the physical shape of their mouth. So it's a good example of this sort of um, why it's difficult and challenging to perceive emotions in other species from the look on their faces. Yes, absolutely. I've worked with, uh, with bottlenose dolphins myself for almost 15 years and many other marine mammals. So yeah, well aware of having to look at other parts of their faces um, and, and listen to sounds they make and the way their eyes are and everything else. But yeah, absolutely. And working with different species will attune us to, you know, like you say, knowing, um, and for my masters, I interviewed care staff 
on, you know, what, what animal-based indicators are they using to understand, you know, how the animals are faring apart from, of course, physical characteristics and everything else. So yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. And as you say, it's important. So working with animals and being around animals, we all have the stories of, you know, knowing or think, you know, knowings, different sorts of knowings, anecdotes and uh, but it's good to then also, you know, do the research and um, and especially also because research can help in changes in policy and changes in lots of ways uh, that we are working for and with animals. So uh, it is an important part of moving things forward. Yeah. I would reiterate that actually and say, and I said that when I speak to students or anyone else, if you're doing animal behavior or sort of animal cognition research linked to welfare, you really have to talk to the public and get the information out there. Um, because ultimately, I mean, the people who keep animals, it's not good enough just to talk to other scientists about what you're finding. You have to talk to the public, you have to talk to farmers, because ultimately the goal of animal welfare research is to improve the lives of animals. It's not to further your own career. Maybe it will happen along the way if you do it well, but ultimately the goal is to improve the lives of animals. And therefore, we really must do public communication. It is really essential. I mean, it's essential for all particular research, I guess. But in particular, for me, working in animal behavior, animal welfare, it's important to convey the results to the general public. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's also main, one of the main things in our work through Animal Concepts and the educational platforms is to also take the scientific knowledge and look at what are the implications or applications for the animals in our care, because it's not always necessarily clear how does that cognition research or how does this, you know, um, sound research apply in the practical day-to-day -day care of animals yeah. or the design of animal welfare programs. So, so lots yeah. of there. For example, coming back to the kangaroo example, we were not working on kangaroo welfare, uh, but we, there was a lot, we did a press release for that study. It was all over the news. Actually, it was mid-December 2020. Alexandra and I did solid uh, interviews, media interviews for days. Alexandra uh, is Australian, so she focused on sort of the implications for kangaroos in Australia. I focus more on the animal cognition angle. But, you know, kangaroos are debated a lot in public. They're highly contentious. They're cold. There is a debate over welfare and stuff like that. Our research was not about welfare, but it was certainly showing that they are sentient beings. So again, if you're culling them or doing whatever with kangaroos, you know, do it in the most humane way possible. That was the message we were trying to get across. They're not just vermin. They're not just pests. You know, they're animals um, with potentially complex behaviors. So whatever you're doing with them, try to give them the best care that you can. And if you do have to kill the animals in certain situations, then you do it in the most humane method that you can. Yes, absolutely. And for this also, I think it's so important to think about the words that we use when we speak about other animals and sentient beings, because of course, when we use words like vermin or pests, um, then, you know, that often also kind of cascades down in other ways of working. Then if we would say, you know, the animals are undesired, but, you know, the animals, they are still doing whatever it is that they want to do. So really paying yeah. attention to, to language can be so powerful as well. And so we're kind of, you know, coming towards the end of the podcast. And there's a few 
other things that I would love to hear from you about. And one is about the rescued goats at the sanctuary uh, displaying positive moods after former neglect. And of course, many sanctuaries today of all kinds take in animals uh, to care for them for the rest of their lives. And, and you know, the resilience in animals, the healing in animals and uh, changes in their well-being is of course important. So tell us more about that, please. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked me about that because that was actually the first study Elodie and I did at Buttercup Sanctuary for Goats. And when I say we, I mean, Elodie did most of the data collection or all the data collection. I went on occasional visits. Buttercup Sanctuary for Goats, it's about a one hour drive in Kent, southeast of London. Uh, it was our main study site. We still work there, in fact. Um, and we had an interest in studying animal emotions, uh, both Elodie and myself. The other thing is, I mean, we were interested in seeing, could you compare how the animals are now after they've been kept at the sanctuary? And one of the things at Buttercups was we had a detailed history or quite a detailed history of what happened to the animals before they came to Buttercups. Buttercups typically, Buttercups Sanctuary for Goats typically has about 130 resident goats. Some of them have just been given in by people and always had good lives, you know, uh, families move away or they don't have land anymore for keeping the goats or, you know, the family split up or maybe a partner dies or a divorce and they can't keep their pets anymore. So those animals, some of those end up at buttercups, but they've been treated well. Other but, uh, goats end up at buttercups and they've been rescued. Uh, details of abuse have been rescued by organizations like the RSPCA in the UK. There were goats that had been confined in very small locations. There was a goat that had its throat slit. There was a goat that had um, its tail cut off and just a history of more long-term abuse as well, not just single events. So Elodie and I, using this cognitive bias approach, this is the sort of glass half empty, glass half full approach that was first of all developed for human psychiatry and psychology, looking at human moods where you ask people how they are. But this was developed or uh, this approach was developed for animals by uh, Professor Mike Mendel at Bristol and uh, co-workers. First of all, they studied rats, but we adopted what they developed, this cognitive bias approach for goats. And you basically train a goat to, let's say, go to the left to get a food reward, left, go to the right out of an enclosure to not get a food reward. And then you give them intermediate options and you measure the speed at which they explore, basically. And the overall idea is that, you know, goats in better mood will explore faster. Goats in a not particularly mood will explore sl more slowly in the ambiguous areas where they don't know whether there's food or not. The analogy I like to give is a sort of human analogy when I'm trying to explain this. And I sort of say, imagine you're getting up for work in the morning, you're not particularly happy about your job, you might get out of bed slowly, you might go to the bus stop or train stop slowly because your work is stressful, you don't like it. And you compare that to when you're in a good mood and you're really excited about going to work and you love your job and stuff and you jump out of bed, get ready quickly and go out the door. Um, well, it's that sort of paradigm. For goats, it's the speed of exploration. Uh, in these ambiguous locations. You've trained them to go one place and go get food nearby. They know there's no food. So then you give them some other options. How quickly do they explore? 
So we had goats, we had goats where we knew that they'd always been treated well, and we had another group of goats where they knew uh, where we knew that they had suffered abuse. So we were interested in testing how is their mood now? How quickly will they explore these ambiguous locations? The one caveat was, or problem or caveat, with the goats that had suffered abuse, you couldn't really work with them. They had to be, we didn't work with them unless they had been at Buttercups for at least a year. The reason we didn't work with them at Buttercups was, I mean, Buttercups often gets in goats, and if anyone ever visits Buttercups, uh, you know, the goats interact with you, or many of the goats do, not all of them. But the goats that had been abused were really fearful. So we could not do experiments with those goats or this experiment, uh, this behavioral test, because, you know, they were scared of us. So we only worked with individuals that there for a year. Uh, so one of the criticisms was, oh, well, you don't know how they were feeling when they came to the sanctuary, but there's no way of getting away from that because you can't test them then anyway. But when we did test our group of goats at a history of being treated well and a history of um, abuse, we found that actually they behaved similarly. So the goats that had been abused, and the key point was the goats that had been abused and had come to buttercups had somehow recovered through getting good care. And I'm really glad you answered, asked me that as well, because I remember presenting this at RSPCA headquarters in the UK, which is in the south, uh, south of London, uh, near Gatwick Airport, actually. Uh, and it was really well received. At the time, similar research had not been on, uh, done on dogs, but after the talk had finished and after the questions had been asked, then somebody came up to me at the end and said, wow, I'm really happy to see this research because now, well, nobody has done it on dogs yet. This is back in 2013, I think. Nobody has done it on dogs yet, but at least we see the potential. When we have dogs at rescue centers and we're trying to rehome them, we can often, we're sort of, in the past, they were sort of semi-apologizing for sort of handing over damaged goods. And this research is showing that, you know, if you give them really good care, they can recover to a mood level just as well as animals that had been treated really well in the past. And this research will really help us to sort of motivate us to rest or to rehome other animals that have suffered abuse. And I think that was one of the best com uh, comments I ever had in terms of um, uh, the research we we're presenting. Yes, absolutely. Having such big implications uh, for animals, and uh, and even though you didn't necessarily know how the animals were feeling, it's imaginable that if you had these things done to you, and especially cumulatively, uh, your mood or your well-being is probably not going to be very uh, very good. And, yeah. and especially in animals that are you know prey species or domesticated, we know from mulesing uh, without anesthesia or these sorts of practices that they are extremely painful and extremely stressful. But they're not outwardly necessarily visible. So, uh, but yeah. indeed, you know, this possibility of animals of recovering and this resilience of healing uh, that is just uh, wonderful. And and so well, the, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, for okay. so many animals, so, you know, wild or domesticated, because we, of course, a lot of wildlife that is being rescued and in similar situations. Yeah, I should credit as well, just to mention that one of the other reasons that the results got out a lot was Victoria Gill at the BBC, and she still works at the BBC, decided to cover the story. So she came to Buttercups with me and we filmed and did some interviews to camera with Bob Hitch, the founder of Buttercups, with myself. And of course, because the BBC put it out as a report, um, 
then a lot of other news media uh, picked it up as well. And again, this gets back to the idea, I don't expect the general public to read a paper. It was published in Applied Animal Behavior Science. You can't expect the general public to read that, but a good sort of press release, an accurate press release, followed by some good uh, media coverage cer certainly gets the message out beyond the normal scientific target audience. Absolutely, and I'm sure that buttercups has uh, lots of you know benefits from that as well, and for all the animals there, because suddenly you know there's a lot more attention and hopefully donations and care and other yeah. opportunities. So as a researcher, there there can be so many implications for animals. Yeah, it has so, been a great place to work over the years. Yeah, I can imagine. So in conclusion for of this podcast, could you share with us um, some goat kid stories? Uh, some uh, a story close to your heart. You know, we all love. Uh, who doesn't love goat kids? And uh, yeah, tell us more. I guess uh, I guess one of the most striking features. I mean, because they go viral. Goat kids are so playful. I mean, we have not studied. Um, we have not studied playing goat kids, but it's really striking. People who have worked on sheep and goats and lots of other people. There are lots of videos on Twitter and other social media. But they are incredible, well, incredibly cute uh, and incredibly playful. The other thing is they're always climbing on stuff. So you see viral videos of them climbing on pigs, climbing on horses, climbing on dogs. Uh, yeah. But as I said, we haven't studied them. But I mean, it's even if you've been studying goats and doing scientific research for 15, 20 or more years, it's an, it's important to, I think, keep some of that fascination that you had as a child and be able to enjoy and laugh a lot, as long as there's no sort of exploitation going on and the animals are really sort of what's happening. Uh, but yeah, but goat kids are a really good example. I don't know why goat kids are particularly playful and cute, but they are incredibly playful and cute. Absolutely. Do you have a final story for us of a particular uh, animal close to your heart or a kid story or any? Uh, I guess, yes. Uh, the closest bond I think I ever formed with an animal was a dog, and he wasn't even my dog. He belonged to my partner and in London. I only got to know him when he was six or seven years old, and actually he died last year during COVID lockdown uh, in London, and I couldn't see him. Um, but I hung out, he was like my weekend dog, uh, and he used to come stay with me. His name was Jack. He was Chocolate Labrador. And we were, yeah, very, very close. Um, and I still miss him, actually. But uh, he was my best buddy for a couple of years, actually, living in London. Um, you know, he was the best mindfulness I could ever have imagined. You know, people talk about having mindfulness and meditation and stuff like that. I could never really meditate or have that sort of mindfulness. But I know when I, I knew when I went to the park with Jack, my focus was on Jack and we had a great time and we used to be in the park for three or four hours on a Saturday and I hardly noticed the time passing. If I went to the park on my own, especially during COVID times, uh, lockdown in London last year, you know, half an hour, I was already bored. So yeah, I think he is one of the most special and the most impactful animals that I've ever been uh, had the pleasure to sort of know for a couple of years. The other thing is, you know, I only got to know him when he was already an adult dog, six, seven years old. So it is my intention eventually to get a rescue dog here in Hong Kong. So I don't have a fear, not that it's a fear, but I don't have, I'm not apprehensive about, uh, 
you know, forming a really deep bond with an adult dog that I'd get out of rescue. You know, you don't have to be with them since they were a puppy or something like that. Jack and I were really best buddies. So, yeah, uh, I guess he's my favorite individual animal ever. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And that's such an important message to close on, you know, especially there's so many dogs and other animals older that need a home, that would love to ho a home, a loving home. And um, yeah, if you're listening and you're thinking about, you know, adopting an animal also, you know, have a look if there are any of the older animals. Um, or even yeah. fostering. I, I think, Absolutely. I yeah. don't know, maybe one of the reasons we were so close, I didn't see him as my dog either. He was more my friend and I took care of him at the weekend and uh, I'm sure he saw me as his friend as well. So, yeah. Yes, wonderful. Thanks so much, Alan, for coming on to the podcast, from sharing, you know, the importance of really looking and collaborating and being critical about what we do and how we do things and, you know, being able together with everybody uh, to affect changes for animals, whether it's in how we, you know, the ethics around it, but also the care and the well-being of animals directly, yeah. you know, in sanctuaries and um, in, in all kinds of places. And taking us through that journey and how you continue to do that, uh, collaborating with people around the world on lots of different species and particularly goats. So we'll make sure there's links to your website to, of course, Buttercup Sanctuary and others. And there's lots of uh, press releases and great videos on your website for people uh, to learn more about your work. So thanks again for coming on to the podcast. Great. Thank you very much, Sabrina, for talking. Uh, it's been really great. So, yeah. So hopefully we'll be developing some new research on cattle and buffaloes here in Hong Kong. Yes, I saw a wonderful picture coming through of a buffalo. So I'm intrigued to, to learn more about that. And there's a lot more uh, on, you know, work that you're doing. So perhaps we can have you back some other time uh, to hear yep. more about things like the theory of animal minds. So thanks again. No Alan, worries. And have a Thank lovely you. day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot.